eyes and put his hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything. And he looked up and said, I see men like trees walking. And then he put his hands on his eyes again and made him look up. And he was restored and saw everyone clearly. Then he sent him away to his house, saying, Neither go into the town nor tell anyone in the town. Now Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road he asked his disciples, saying to them, Who do men say that I am? And so they answered, John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. Then he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke this word openly. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of man. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Well, I wonder, have you ever found yourself having to take a second glance? You look at something, and then you have to take a second look to make sure that you've seen it right. I remember during seminary, I must have been in the middle of my Hebrew studies, and reading Hebrew, you have to read from right to left. I had an appointment with my optometrist, my eye doctor, and she asked me to read the letters on the chart. The letters were large enough. It was no trouble for me to read them, but I noticed her reaction was not normal. She looked at the chart, she looked at me, and I could tell there's something not right here. Then it dawned on me. I'd read the letters from right to left. Clearly, my Hebrew had taken over my brain while I did much better the second time round. And maybe something similar has happened to you. You see something, And it looks confusing to begin with. And so you have to take a second look for it to then make sense. Often um, in comical photographs, people position themselves in such a way that it looks like, for example, they're holding up up the Leaning Tower of Pisa or some other optical illusion. And you find yourself having to study the photograph to make sense of it. Well, in our passage today, we read of this man having to take a second look before he sees clearly. But this man's healing is a parallel to the disciples and their ability to see the identity of Jesus correctly. And so I want you to consider, do you see that Jesus is the Christ? But do you also see that Jesus came to die and to rise again? for your salvation. So firstly, notice, Jesus gives a blind man his sight, and he does the same for you. So a blind man is brought to Jesus. And just notice the care and sensitivity that Jesus shows to this man. 
He guides the man by the hand. He leads him from the village and away from the crowd so that only the disciples would witness what Jesus would do. What Jesus would do, yes, it would be uh, help to the man, but it also shows the care that Jesus had for his disciples. He wanted them to understand who he was. And so he, he called on them to follow him. They got to watch his miracles. They got to hear his teaching over these, these, this time. But they clearly haven't understood. And so it would be through this miracle, this healing, that he would enable them to see who he is. Now, it seems strange how Jesus healed this man. He doesn't just say a word. But like the man who was deaf and dumb last week, Jesus in his compassion does something that the man could feel. He felt Jesus spit on his eyes and put his hands on him. And in John's gospel, Jesus healed a blind man by the pool of Siloam by making mud from his saliva and putting that on the man's eyes. And something similar. It is strange, but it's also loving. And that Jesus tenderly helps the man know what he is doing, even though this man was unable to see it. But there's also something unique about this healing. And I wonder if you picked up on it. It took Jesus two goes, two attempts to heal him. Now, it seems that Jesus anticipated that his eyes, or the, the blind man's eyes, weren't completely restored on his first touch when he asked him, do you see anything? It's not normal for Jesus to ask that question. And the man's response is that he sees people, but in a hazy way, he says that they look like trees walking around. The picture he sees makes no sense. And then Jesus touched his eyes for the second time. And this time, the man's sight is restored, and he sees everything clearly. So why did it take Jesus two attempts at healing this man's sight? Is it because Jesus is not powerful enough? Well, no. Did this man have a particularly resilient type of blindness? No. All the rest of Jesus' miracles were instantaneous. All his healings, his calming off the storm, his turning water into wine, happened at once. So why are there two stages in the healing of this man? Well, this miracle, like all the miracles, was a sign. It was pointing to something. It points to the disciples and their vision, or rather their lack of vision of who Jesus is. Up to this point, the disciples have been confused about the identity of Jesus, not fully understanding who he is. Remember when Jesus calmed the storm? They asked the question, who is this? And even the wind and the waves obey him. And when Jesus fed both crowds of 5,000 and 4,000, what was their reaction? They still wondered where they would get bread for their journey. Ferguson writes, Jesus was leading them by the hand to the point at which their sight would be much clearer. This miracle points to the fact that, that sight comes from Jesus. Spiritual sight is a gift from Jesus. The disciples would only know Jesus 
if he miraculously opens their blind eyes. And likewise for you too. Jesus is the one who opens your blind eyes for you to see who he is. And we read that in our call to worship, Ephesians 1. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened. Jesus is the one who enlightens our eyes to understanding. He gives sight to the blind, both the physically blind, this man, this blind man in Bethsaida, but also the spiritually blind, like his disciples, like you and I. Well, secondly, let's consider there are various views of Christ out there. So Jesus takes his disciples to Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asks the question, who do men say that I am? This is a monumental question. The answer to this question, it would affect people's eternal well-being. It's a matter of life or death, how they answer this question. And Jesus wanted the disciples to consider the various ideas that people have about his identity. The first answer they give is that Jesus is John the Baptist. And remember, this is King Herod's view. We noted how he too was curious who Jesus was. He even thought that Jesus was John, risen from the dead. Now, they are cousins of a similar age. They may even have looked similar. They both preached to their followers a message of repentance. They both were not popular with the religious leaders. But John pointed to one who is coming, while Jesus said that he is the one who is to come. Well, then some said that Jesus is Elijah. And that's not surprising because Malachi predicted that Elijah would come again. And we read that in Malachi 4. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And so the Jews had been waiting for Elijah to come for a long time. But Elijah resembles John the Baptist more than he does Jesus. They both ministered in the desert. They both were eccentric in how they dressed and in the food that they ate. And if anything, the people should connect that John is the coming Elijah who was preparing the way for the Messiah. And if Elijah had come in John, well, then the answers to the identity of Jesus should be obvious, that he is the Lord that John was preparing the way for. Well, others say that Jesus is one of the prophets. They believed he must have been sent by God, for no one else could speak like how he spoke. Remember how the people were amazed at Jesus' teaching. And that's because he taught as one with authority. And so when Jesus fed the 5,000, we read in John's gospel of the people trying to make Jesus king by force. They wanted to make him king for they recognized his authority. But Jesus is no political king. His kingdom is not of this world. Other reactions to Jesus that we considered were the Pharisees. They said in response to him forgiving sins that only God can forgive sins. And since they believed he was not God, well, they believed he was blaspheming. They said that he was from the devil, believing only the devil would have power to remove demons, which Jesus pointed out was foolish thinking. And this question of who is Jesus is one that our world has to grapple with. 
Many will say that he is a wise teacher, a prophet even. That is what Muslims believe about Jesus. Others look to him to being a political revolutionary, although he's clearly not a very good one. Some say he was a mythical character, and so they deny his existence, ignoring all the historical evidence for his existence. Some say that he was only an example to follow. But is that all Jesus is? That does not take into account all the evidence that Mark and the other gospel writers for who Jesus is. And you likewise have to come to a conclusion on the identity of Jesus. You have to consider the evidence. Many are too afraid to read the gospel accounts. They don't want to think about it. They prefer to stay in ignorance than knowing who Jesus is. So are you ready for the question? Who do you say Jesus is? So thirdly, who do you say Jesus is? Verses 29 and 30. So Jesus asks the disciples, who do you say I am? They know Jesus the best compared to anyone else. And Peter, speaking for the group, responded that Jesus wasn't simply another prophet. He said, you are the Christ. Literally, you are the anointed one. Keller writes, Christos has come to mean the anointed one, the Messiah, the king to end all kings, the king who's going to put everything right. You are the Messiah, Peter says. The Jews have been waiting thousands of years for the Messiah, the promised king from the line of David. And now Peter and the other disciples, they recognize who Jesus is. But we must not see the statement of Peter as something that was easy for him to say. He was recognizing Jesus, this humble carpenter as the Messiah. Peter would have been brought up reciting the creed of Israel, the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. To say that Jesus is the Son of the living God was something revolutionary. It was a huge statement for Peter to make. But Peter and the disciples had assessed the evidence. Jesus' words, Jesus' works, pointed to him having the same authority of God. And therefore, he is the Son of God. Well, who do you say Jesus is? We've gone through the first half of Mark's gospel. You've had opportunity to consider the evidence of Jesus' identity. Can you also say that Jesus is the Christ? That he is the Messiah, God's anointed king? Well, if not, then you're still blind. No different from the people who thought that Jesus was a prophet or Elijah or John the Baptist. Well, fourthly, notice you see Jesus as the Christ, and yet you still need to expand your vision of him. Strangely, Jesus ends this section with a warning not to tell anyone about him. And the reason for this is because the people had not yet understood who he was. And we'll soon see that the disciples had not understood Jesus completely. For although they had rightly identified that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, they didn't understand Jesus' ministry. Like the blind man, Peter and the other disciples, 
They could only see Jesus partially. His vision of Jesus is still fuzzy. Children, I wonder, have you ever opened your eyes? Uh, When you're in the swimming pool, you're under the water, and everything is blurry, isn't it? You can't make everything out. It's just random shapes. Well, in some ways, that is Jesus' vision, or that is the disciples' vision of Jesus. They had received the first touch, which enabled them to see Jesus' identity, but they did not understand the nature of Jesus' ministry for them to see everything clearly now. And this is evident when Jesus describes his ministry. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer. And just notice the word began. Only when the disciples understood that Jesus was the Messiah was Jesus in the position to explain what his ministry entailed. And we read that his mission must involve suffering. The Son of Man must suffer many things. And each thing that Jesus mentions must happen for his mission to be complete. He would be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, or the scribes. These are the three groups that that make up the Sanhedrin, the official Jewish council. He would be killed. Jesus' death is no accident, but it was planned. It was part of his mission on earth. It was the only way for Jesus to renew this world. His death would pay the price of sin that prevents us from having a relationship with God. Hebrews 9 verse 22 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And so Jesus' death, the shedding of his blood on the cross, would bring about a reconciliation between God and man. But notice he also said he will be raised to life again. Death will not hold him. So what an incredible thing for Jesus to say. And Mark records that he spoke these words openly or plainly. His death and resurrection are no secret. Jesus is being very clear with his disciples. They were left in no doubt about the implications of Jesus' teaching. His ministry would be clear. And so it wasn't that Jesus confused them. And this would also be the first of three predictions that Jesus would make of his death and resurrection in Mark's gospel. And so Jesus is being emphatic about what's involved in his mission. Now, the fact that the Messiah would suffer is not a new idea. The prophet Isaiah prophesied of a suffering servant. In Isaiah 53, he is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. And that's just one verse from that chapter that speaks of the suffering servant. And so this idea of a suffering servant, it must not have been popular, at least with the Jews, because they had not worked out how the Messiah would both suffer and also be triumphant. And so when Peter heard Jesus making reference to his future death, Peter rebukes Jesus for speaking like that. Now, rebuke is a strong word. Remember how Jesus rebuked the demons. And so when Peter rebukes Jesus, he's not mincing his words. It's not, I think you might want to rethink your plan. Instead, it's more like, 
there's no way that you, the Christ, are going to give up your life. Well, Jesus, notice how he brings this discussion to the group. It wasn't only to Peter. Jesus wants them all to understand that what Peter is saying is wrong and dangerous. For Satan, too, had tried to entice Jesus off course. And so for Jesus, Peter's words were like Satan, tempting him not to submit to his father's plan. He knew his father's plan was not up for negotiation. He would obey the father. Wilmhurst says, get behind me. That doesn't mean get out of my sight. It means your place is not to tell me what to do. Peter, your place is to follow me. So get in line. Get behind me. Peter is speaking man's ideas, not God's plan. And so Jesus rebukes him for thinking in such a worldly way. Well, why did Peter say that to Jesus? Well, he was appalled to hear that Jesus was willing to suffer, be rejected, and die. It sounds defeatist. Why come and die? Let's at least fight first. He felt compelled to talk Jesus out of this mission. Do it a different way. Keep on healing the sick, raising the dead. That will keep you popular. Maybe Peter understood Jesus to be the one to drive out the Romans and establish a free Israel. Why is Jesus wanting to do something different? He maybe recognized the opposition that Jesus was facing from the Pharisees, but he wasn't going to let them kill Jesus without a fight. And Peter also knew if Jesus would suffer, then his followers would also suffer. Peter and the other disciples, they were enjoying the attention and the popularity that Jesus had brought them. But that's not going to continue if Jesus is going to suffer. So when Jesus is no longer following Peter's agenda, we see Peter upset But Jesus' agenda is not the things of man, but the things of God. And so God would use Jesus' suffering, would use his death to enable his people to have salvation. Well, do you recognize Jesus' mission? Unlike Peter, we get to see it from the other side. We get to see it from mission accomplished. But do you accept it? That it's through Jesus' death, which defeats sin, proven by the resurrection, that you have hope. Has God opened your eyes for you to understand the necessity of Jesus' death on the cross for your salvation? Well, finally, fifthly, pray that God continues to open your eyes. The blind man went from seeing nothing to seeing something to seeing everything. And likewise, Peter and the disciples. Initially, they didn't see Jesus as the Messiah. And when they did see him as the Messiah, they didn't see him as the suffering servant. But then, thankfully, after the resurrection, Peter is able to stand up in front of thousands and declare that Jesus is the suffering Messiah, who is also risen from the dead, the King who must be revered, the Lord who must be obeyed. And so Peter has been given full spiritual sight. He saw the truth. His eyes have been opened. And that's the mark of the Christian, the one who sees and understands Jesus as he really is. And so when you see Jesus as the Christ, 
as the risen Lord and Savior, well, then you understand the implications. You are to put your trust in him for your salvation. And Jesus will keep on opening your eyes. He'll keep on sharpening your vision. And this will continue until the process is made complete. The second touch will ultimately be achieved at your glorification, when Christ and his glory is fully revealed. Ferguson writes, if the second touch symbolized a definite experience for the believer, it would be that of glorification, when we will no longer see only fragments of Christ, but his full glory revealed before us. In the meantime, our spiritual vision needs to be sharpened. And that sharpening continues as God opens your eyes, increasing your faith in him. And so we come to a turning point in Mark's gospel. After Peter's confession, the focus is no longer simply on the identity of Jesus Christ, but now on his mission, what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. And as we continue in Mark's gospel, do you see that Jesus is a Christ? But do you also see that Jesus came and died and rose again for you to have salvation? John Newton is a man who knew these truths. Newton lived in the 18th century, and he was the lowest of the low. He was a wretch of a man. He hated God. He hated everything to do with God. And he was a wicked slave trader who denied God. And yet one night, during a ferocious storm just off Donegal, he cried out to God for mercy. He surprised himself that he could utter such a desperate prayer. He doubted that God, if he did exist, would even think of forgiving him because he was such a bad person. But gradually in that storm that tossed that boat that John Newton was in, his blindness began to be healed. He writes, I needed an almighty savior who would step in and take my sins away. And I saw that because of the sufferings of Jesus, he took away my sins so I might be forgiven. And John Newton wrote that famous hymn, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. John Newton finally could see that Jesus is his savior. God had given him spiritual sight. And the question Jesus asked his disciples, you must ask yourselves, who do you say I am? Do you see that Jesus is the Christ? And do you also see that Jesus came to die and to rise again for you to have salvation? Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us sight, sight to behold that Jesus is the Messiah, sight to accept his death on the cross as what's needed to pay the price for our redemption, sight to believe that Jesus has risen, conquering death. And we pray, Lord, that you would continue to open our eyes that our faith in Christ would grow more and more each day, even this week, that you would cause us to trust you more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please turn in your blue psalm book to Psalm 123a. 123a. Notice the psalmist here has his eyes on God. 
and he recognizes that Jesus is the Messiah. He is God's anointed king. He also trusts that it is in God that he receives grace, and this is only possible through the reconciling work of Jesus Christ. So let us also look to God for his grace as we sing this psalm. Let's stand and sing Psalm 123a. Eh?